Welcome! You're listening to audio of Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. At ICC, we are being transformed by Jesus to impact our world. Wherever you are as you listen today, we want you to know that we love and appreciate you. We're so glad you're here. We hope today's message will help you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thanks again for joining us. My name is Barrett Bowden. I'm the lead pastor here at Island Community Church. If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to get them open this morning to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. We are going to continue our series today, What He's Done. And we're going to continue our study. This series is a study of the book of Romans. We are three ripe weeks in, and um, I am incredibly excited to have the opportunity again today to go back into this wonderful book together. Um, For those who are asking some big questions in life, maybe questions about yourself, questions about the world that we live in, questions about God, questions about what has gone wrong in our world, questions about even what has gone wrong within us, questions about what would it look like to be for things to be put back right with God and with one another, for questions about myself, what would it look like for me to be put right with God now and forever? This book has answers to some of the most important questions. And in this book, I'd like to train everybody that I've ever discipled personally, if y'all have ever been discipled by me uh, in any setting personally or in a group, you, you might have heard me use the phrase, look, and it's a, it's a, it's a borrowed phrase, it's not original to me, but... If you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get gold, okay? So what we're doing in this series is we're digging together, okay? We're digging into God's word. Uh, We're going slowly through it, but we're going slowly for the opportunity to really discover my aim every week is to help you discover what God's word plainly says. And so this morning, we continue in that journey Uh, in this life-changing book and to understand more about what God has done. If you're taking notes this morning, and I hope you will, um, I would encourage you to highly because I I desire this morning not just to to preach at you, but to really lead you in an understanding of God's word and to really lead you, of course, to God uh, in a way that you can really understand him, that you can live in relationship with him. And also, I pray that this word will be helpful to you, not just now, but in the future, and, and, and not just personally, but also as you disciple others. So this morning, if you're taking notes, uh, we're going to be talking about, I, I'm going to be really ambitious today, you guys. I hope it's okay. I have chosen to go through two verses of Romans 1. Are y'all okay with that? All right. So two verses of Romans 1 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17. And the title of today's message is Understanding the Gospel. I wonder, um, have you ever wondered, like, what would be a simple summary of the gospel? Have you ever had a question about that? Like, if I could go to one place and just get, like, a really simple summary of the gospel, what would it be? I got good news for you this morning because in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we essentially are going to be unpacking the thesis of the book of Romans, all right? Anybody remember back to high school or college when you had to write papers, some of you were still in the middle of it, and you had to come up with a thesis statement? Anybody? Okay. So, today, uh, Paul, in this letter, um, 
we are going to be reading, unpacking what most would consider, certainly what I also consider, his thesis statement for this theological masterpiece, this book that he's written to help us to know what God has done. So essentially, if you're looking for a, a concise summary of, of the gospel message, uh, uh, two verses perhaps for you to memorize, and I would encourage you, and I really do mean this personally, I know I'm a pastor, but I'm telling you personally, I have benefited so much from memorizing God's word. Um, I would encourage you to think about maybe circling these two verses. After we go through them today, I think you'll be convinced of their importance. But I would encourage you to think about memorizing these two verses in your life. Um, I have memorized these. I memorized these back in college. And they have been incredibly beneficial to me in my walk with God um, over, ever, ever since then. Memorizing Scripture allows us the opportunity to carry God's w- word with us in our hearts. And if you're looking for some good verses, good gospel verses to memorize in a way that could give you a real summary statement for yourself, but also for others, consider memorizing these two, all right? So we're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17 today in a message called Understanding the Gospel. I'm going to read these two verses to you. There's two kind of categories. Now, I I need to say right at the start, I think the book of Romans is probably the most well-written about book in all of the Bible um, in terms of theology and expounding on the scripture. I think these two verses in Romans are probably the most well-documented, well-discussed verses in this most discussed book of Romans itself. And so this morning, I'm not creating original content. Okay, nothing that I say is original. I'm gonna be trying to do a lot of word studies with you, phrase studies with you, and trying to help you understand the scripture. But in terms of the way that I'm gonna organize and frame uh, today's message, uh, I have relied heavily on those faithful pastors and theologians who have gone before us. And I'm organizing according to how most kind of see this structure laid out. So you see there's, there's kind of two big parts. In verse 16, we see some very clear gospel characteristics. And then in verse 17, we see some very clear gospel content. Now, I'm going to give you six characteristics for you structural thinkers, and I'm going to give you three important pieces of gospel content. So as we go through this, listen out for these lists, because this morning what I want you to do is make lists with me according to these things that God's Word clearly exposes. So, starting in our characteristic list, the first characteristic that we see that Paul says, I, I want you to get it, oh, I want for you to get this, it's this, that the gospel destroys shame. In other words, this is the gospel's effect. Now, verse 16 starts with the word what? No, the word for. Sorry, I was asking a question and then it sounded like I was saying the word what. No. It starts with the word for. Now, anytime you you get a word like this in the scripture, right, it's basically indicating that this, he's about to explain something. It's a word like because in the original language. So, He's saying that this relates to what he's just said. Now, if you remember what he just said in verse 15 was, I am so excited, I'm so eager 
to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's saying, I can't wait to get to you. I, I so want to be with you. For, because, in other words, he's saying, I'm so excited to be with you because. And then he begins to describe, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, this gospel here, we've discussed it already in the last two weeks. It's the primary theme of Paul's introduction. It's the primary theme of this entire book. But what he says here is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, as one commentator put it, think about this. Paul had been imprisoned in Philippi. He'd been chased out at Thessalonica. He'd been smuggled out of Berea. He'd been laughed out of Athens. He'd been regarded as a fool when he went to Corinth with this message. He literally had been stoned near to death in Galatia. And yet, Paul is saying to them, but I am also ready and even eager to come to you. This centerpiece of political power and pagan religion in all the Mediterranean world, and what Paul's basically saying is, there's not ridicule that could stop me. There's not criticism that could stop me. There's not physical persecution that could stop me. I am what? Not ashamed. Now, another way we could think about this, um, if you think about it in the positive, you could think he's saying, I am confident in the gospel. Or he could even have even said, I am proud of the gospel. Or he could have said, essentially, I am not going to shrink back from declaring to you the gospel. Now, why is it that he's saying this? Here's what I want to do. I want to get through what he says about the gospel, and then I want to come back and engage that question at the end. Because it's incredibly important that you understand the heart here, the heart of Paul, and more importantly, the heart of God. Because this is a personal letter. We're looking at it very doctrinally. There's so much that we can engage with our mind, but think about him looking at you in the eyes and saying, there's nothing that could stop me wanting to talk to you about this good news of Jesus. There's absolutely nothing. This is why I wrote the book. This is why I want to come to you. This is everything. And I'm not, I'm not going to let any, anything stop me from trying to connect with you this morning, from understanding this message of what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
That's, that's Paul's heart. He's, he's trying to cut through and say, you know my story, but I'm not gonna stop talking about it because it's everything, and you need this. You need this, you need this, you need this. You've got to listen to what I'm trying to explain to you. This understanding the gospel thing is not just a, a casual walk in the park, it is critical. So I'm trying to get through. There's nothing gonna stop me. I, I wanna get your attention and tell you about what he's done, all right? Why is he not ashamed? We'll come back to that at the end. So for now, we'll move forward. But what you gotta know is, even though we're coming back to it at the end, the first thing that Paul says about this gospel is this gospel destroys shame. The second thing he points out is that this gospel is a living force. This gospel is a living force. Its, its power is that it's a living force. Now, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This phrase here, the power of God, I want you to pay attention to it. Interestingly, the Greek word here is this, dunamis. All right, can y'all say that with me? Dunamis. Does it look like anything that we are familiar with in the English? Dynamite, right? Boom! goes the dynamite. Can y'all say that with me? I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> some of y'all were actually excited to be able to do that. Boom! He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the dynamite, so to speak, of God. It is the power of God. Now, interestingly, He's trying to contrast this with just words. Sometimes when we think about doctrine, sometimes it can feel just like this is just all philosophy or this is just all like truth to be engaged with the mind, but or these are just words to be understood, concepts to be embraced. But what Paul is teaching us here is that if you gotta understand the gospel, and you need to, then you gotta understand that it's something more than just words going on here. In fact, we'll use uh, a verse to kind of help us understand this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 20. This is another verse that comes from Paul. He says here, for the kingdom of God does not consist in what? Talk, but rather in what? In dunamis, in power. So again, Paul is making it clear that if you want to understand the gospel, then you have to understand that we're talking about something more than a concept, more than a philosophy. We are talking about the power of God. As Tim Keller says in the gospel, words and power come together. The message of the gospel is what God has done and will do for us. It doesn't say that the gospel brings power 
or has power, but the gospel is power. In other words, this good news is actually the power of God in verbal and cognitive form. Now you might think that this is a foolish message, but the reality is the gospel is an effective message because in the news of Jesus Christ, God brings his power and only God and his dynamite, so to speak, in our hearts is able to overcome our sinful nature. Only God is able to overcome our sinfulness and our selfishness and our rebellion against him and to bring us back to him. And we'll talk more about this in a second, but the reality is the gospel is powerful. It transforms, it lifts people up. When the gospel is proclaimed, even this morning as I share and outline and explain this to you, there is an opportunity for a power to be released. Uh, an old Syrian bishop back in the fifth century, not very often you get illustrations that involve old Syrian bishops. You know what I'm saying? But Theodoret was his name. He actually described the gospel kind of being like a pepper. All right? You're like, say what? <laughs> and this is what they did in the fifth century. They sat around and thought, up, thought about things like this, okay? He said, a pepper outwardly seems to be cold, but the person who crunches in between the teeth experiences the sensation of burning fire. The ah part was not his quote, that was mine, all right? <laughs> the sensation of burning fire. And he says, in the same way, the gospel can appear first like an interesting theory or philosophy, but if we crunch it between the teeth of our heart, if we take it personally, we find that the gospel is full of power. I want to tell you, God is powerful. Some of us feel stuck. <laughs> Some of us feel frustrated. Some of us wonder how things will ever change. And I got to tell you, God can change things. God is a powerful God. He is omnipotent. There's nothing that can stop him. And the reality is that the good news of what God has done in Jesus brings with it the power of God for radical change. God can completely change you. And I can testify to this because God has completely changed me. The old has gone and the new has come. And the same can happen with you. What you need in life is not to become a better person. You must become a new person. You don't need effort to make yourself better. You need God's power to make you new. And what Paul is saying here is the very thing that you need, the power that you need to work to transform you from the inside out, the very thing you need to change is available to you God's power is unleashed in the gospel. The good news of Jesus brings the transforming power of God. Do you hear it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God. That's right. The gospel is a living force. Characteristic number three. Not only is 
The gospel, not only does it destroy shame, not only is it a living force, but he says here the gospel can save. This is the gospel's work. The gospel can save. If we go back to verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation. So in other words, you've got to ask the question, what does this power do? You're saying the gospel brings the dynamite power of God, but what is this power intended to do? What is it able to do? And the answer is, it is able to save. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time here because... The Greek word here, soteria, it's literally translated salvation for us. Another way to understand it would be to understand it as like a deliverance or even as a rescue, okay? This word is a pretty significant word uh, in the book of Romans. In fact, um, this exact word is used five times in this book. The verb form of this word is used uh, another 11 times in this book. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying, I want you to know, if you're asking the question this morning, uh, how, how, how is it possible for me to be saved. How would it be possible for me? I mean, do you, do you know me? Do you know the brokenness? Do you, do you know the ugliness? Do you know the depth of need? Like, I mean, how would it be possible for me to be rescued, to be put back right with God? And, and Paul is saying here, I want you to know that this gospel does bring the power, the dunamis of God, and this power has the ability to save you. If you're wondering how could it be possible, I'm telling you, it's possible. Because this power has been unleashed for this purpose that you might be rescued, that you might be delivered that you might be put back right. This is the power of God, like the banks of the Mississippi River, right? Hold in all that water. And it's directed in a certain way. What he's saying is the power of God is huge, it's vast. I mean, you just imagine the great power of God, but it's directed in a certain way, like the banks of the river. And the direction of this power is toward you for a specific thing for you that you might be rescued, that you might be delivered, that you might be put back right. This is the power of God to save. And Paul's saying this is. You know, there's no other power on earth, not even anything that you could do, or anyone else could do for you to put you back right with God, to save you, to reconcile you, 
to guarantee you a place with God now and forever. And Paul's saying, but this is it. This is the place. Um, there's, a, there's a line in the Andrew Peterson song. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? Y'all know the one I'm talking about? Please don't make me sing anymore. He's looking around, going, is there anyone? Is there anyone? Is there any way? Is there anyone who could do this work that's needed? And Paul's going, there is! There is! This is the gospel. It's directed for this purpose. God's power is directed to save through this message, through this news of what he's done. This is the opportunity that you have to be saved, to put you right with God, to completely change you, to change your mind, to change your heart, to put in you a new spirit, to make you a new creation, for there to be a complete reorientation of your life, a complete reversal of all that has been. He could put you back right again. There is a power that can save you. How wonderful. The news of Paul, the news of God, for those of us who ask the question, is anyone able? He's going, oh, this is why I'm writing to you. This is able, and not this. He is able. The fourth characteristic that we look at here in verses 16 and 17 is that this gospel not only can save, but this gospel can save anyone. Paul's describing here the scope of the gospel. He says here, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone. To everyone. This salvation is available to all. I got an amazing little insight for you here. This phrase, to everyone, in the Greek, it's, it's, basically it means here, everyone. Thank you for the laughs, I really appreciate that. Worked very hard on that one. Sometimes you don't need to be a scholar in Greek to understand what a word really means. <laughs> and this word means what it means. It means to all, to everyone. This is a huge theme in the book of Romans. I will continue to talk about it again and again and again because Paul continues to talk about it again and again and again. And the world where Paul was living similar to the world that we live in. There's such things as racism. 
The people who think that by the color of their skin, they are better than other people who have a different color of skin. There's classism. That people that genuinely would think that by their status in society, the amount of money that they had, the neighborhood they live in, the degrees that they had, the family they came from, that by those things that they're better than people who don't have those things. I know that you're familiar with these things because like I said, it's the world that we live in too. And one of the big things that Paul is trying to get through, that God is trying to get through through Paul, is for us to understand that God does not relate to other people the way that we relate to other people, the way this broken world wants to encourage us to relate to other people. God does not discriminate on the basis of race or class or family or education or income. Where you live, where you came from, what's in your past, what's in your story. God doesn't operate like that. This gospel is for everyone. And Paul was a man who used to treat people on those bases. Used to consider himself better than others largely on all of these things that the world throws at us. And what Paul is saying is I have been radically transformed because I now understand that this power of God for salvation is for all people. It's for everyone. This is a huge, seemingly huge advancement for Paul and for many of us, I believe, there's still a lot of room to grow for us to see as God sees. And for us to have a heart that beats for all people, all people, to have the opportunity to experience the saving power of God. If you're here today, I've got good news for you. I don't know how you've been treated so far in your life in other churches, in Christian, so-called Christian circles. I don't know what you think in terms of even this good news, the message of salvation that I'm proclaiming to you this morning, but I've got, I do have good news for you. That you are included in the everyone. I don't care what nation you've come from. I don't care what race you belong to. I don't care how much money is in your bank account. I don't care who your mama was, who your daddy was. I mean, I do care. I, I know that's important. But what I'm saying is, friend, the power of God to save is available to you. It's available to you. It doesn't matter about all that other stuff that has been or that other people may have done to you or defined you as God sees you apart from those things. While those things are important to our stories, those things do not determine the availability of salvation for us. Jesus Christ came to save all people without discrimination, including you. 
And so if you're here this morning, I don't want there to be anything that would stand in the way of you coming to Jesus. Don't let any piece of your background stand in the way of you coming to Jesus. And don't let any other person's words toward you, past, present, or future, stand in the way of you coming to Jesus. Listen to me right now. Jesus' power to save is available to you. He gets to determine who he came for, and he came for you. Amen? The fifth characteristic, I pray that you believe, is this, <laughs> that the gospel saves. It can save anyone. That's what I said in characteristic four, but here in characteristic five, you gotta hear this, that the gospel saves only those who believe. So while the scope of the gospel is for all, there is a condition of the gospel. And the condition of the gospel is that it requires you to believe. If you go back to verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, right? And then it says, what? Who believes? To everyone who believes. Now, what I want to do briefly is explain to you this word in the Greek. It's this word, pistuo. Now, Essentially, to understand this word, you have to understand it, it means to trust, or you could say maybe a better word picture would be to rely on. Picture a time in your life where you literally have been unable to do something, completely unable. My mom, my sweet mom, her name is Rhonda, she fell a few weeks ago, had a really bad fall. Broke her wrist many places. Badly hurt the other, as well as her tailbone. Um, such a helpless condition, right? Her right hand, her dominant hand, to literally have to rely on other people to help feed you, to help dress you, to help bathe you. That is, some might call a sad place to be. It's definitely a helpless place to be. But she had to learn, going in the last few weeks through what she's been through, she's had to learn how to rely completely on other people. Think of a time in your life where you've had to rely on someone else. Or maybe a, a situation in which you might be forced to rely completely on someone else. What Paul is saying here is that the power of God is available to save, and it's available to save anyone, but there's a condition to who this salvation is applied to. And the condition is it's applied to those who rely completely on it, who rely completely on this salvation of God in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying the only way you can experience this 
It's by actually trusting Jesus. See, there's a lot of people who are around the gospel. Even look at Jesus and his ministry. There are a lot of people who are around the gospel. They were around Jesus. They were around this news of what Jesus could do. But there's a difference of being around the gospel and actually experiencing the gospel's power to save. There's a difference of hearing it and receiving it. Every person has to come to a point in their life where you've got to make a decision of what are you going to do with the message of Jesus Christ. I believe even right now you're hearing it. God is powerful to save. And it's available to you. But at the end of the day, there comes a moment where you've got to decide. It's not just enough to know in your head, it's available for me. But you've got to actually make a decision, what am I going to do with this? Am I actually going to put all of my reliance on Jesus? That is a decision that you've got to make. And only you can make. I can't make that for you. No one can make that for you. It's not something that we inherit because we were a member of a church or because we were a part of a Christian family or we belong to a so-called Christian nation. This is something that has to be decided personally. What, what Paul's saying here is you've got to come to a point where you make a decision. Where are you going to put your reliance? Are you going to continue to rely on self or are you going to come to a point of going, oh, I cannot do it. But God, I believe you can do it. And God, I'm going to put all of my reliance on you. Faith, um, as one said, to kind of understand it, it's kind of like a channel or a connection to the gospel. It's almost like a, like a light switch is the channel between the source of electricity and the light bulb. And you've got to decide, are you going to believe? Are you going to shift your reliance from self to God? And Paul's saying, okay, you know, I want you to know God's power is boundless, but I also want you to know that at the same time, it's boundaried. It's available to everyone, but it's really only activated when you make a decision to believe. Okay? So that's the fifth characteristic of the gospel, that the gospel saves only those who believe. Now, the last characteristic of the gospel that I want to show you here is the sixth one, and it's this one, that the gospel came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. This is the gospel's history. Now, if you look at verse 16 again, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation to everyone who believes. And then he describes this, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to say 
that essentially what Paul's referencing here is that all of this work started with the Jewish people. Read the Old Testament. And it's going to be a theme that we come back to, so we'll have time to talk about this more, especially as we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11. But it's a huge theological theme in the book, and I think a lot of us miss it. Because there was a lot of questions swirling in Paul's day, more than are swirling in our day, because we are Gentiles, most of us, I think, in this room. There was a lot of questions swirling around, how is it that Gentiles could be saved? And what Paul is trying to explain here in this book is, wait, it's not to say that this is totally ignores the Jewish people. They're like, there's this new era. No, the Jewish people, we, we have to understand theologically, God began a work through the Jewish people, God chose Israel to be his witness nation. He gave her promises of salvation. In fact, he brought salvation through her with the arrival of Jesus. Jesus' ministry started to her. He arrived in Israel. And the ministry that we now enjoy has come through her. So what he's saying is the Jewish people are an incredible part of the story of redemption that God has brought in Jesus Christ, but we can't limit it only to the Jewish people. It is also for the Gentile, because he said earlier, it is for everyone. He puts it in the thesis statement because he's going to spend almost three chapters talking about how this can be so, okay? So we're gonna put a little pause on that. We're gonna come back to it later. Y'all cool with that? All right, so the gospel came to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Now, now that we've discussed these characteristics of the gospel, what I want to do as we close this morning is talk about the content of the gospel. What is this gospel message? Well, the first piece of the content is that this gospel declares God's perfect righteousness is provided in Jesus Christ. God's perfect righteousness is provided in Jesus Christ. How is it that the gospel is powerful to save? That's the question that he's gonna answer in verse 17. How is it that the gospel can be so powerful to save us? And here he's going to explain it. Again, the word for. So he's building off of what has just come previous. And he's explaining to us how is it that this gospel can save. For in it, talking about the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The first phrase I want you to note here is the righteousness of God, all right? In Greek, it's this phrase. Excuse me. It's not easy to write Greek, you guys. There's a reason people say it's Greek to me. Dikaiosune. Theos. It's used nine times in this letter, okay? Nine different times in the book of Romans. 
dikaiosene theos. This is a hugely important phrase. In fact, the whole gospel, your understanding of the gospel, rides on your understanding of this particular phrase. The righteousness of God. Now, you kind of get a good handle on uh, righteousness just by thinking about what it means in English, right? What does it mean to be right with your employer? Or what does it mean to be right with the government? Or what does it mean to be right with your spouse or another person? It's kind of a positional word, right? It means like having good standing, having no debts, having no problems, nothing that you owe to another person. It's like I'm acceptable to this other party because there's nothing on my record that's jeopardized my relationship, okay? That's kind of what it means. Now, there's debate around what this phrase means. Um, In fact, if you look at the phrase and you study it in scripture, you can see some options. It could mean God's righteousness as in like, we're talking about an attribute of God. Like God is so righteous, like he is perfect. He's morally perfect, he's holy. We fall so far short. So that's one option. It could also mean righteousness from God, AKA what kind of we we were just describing, like this status, like am I right with God? Positional, like am I good? It could also mean a righteousness done by God. In other words, we're referring here to like an action. And the question is, what does it mean here? Can't mean all of these things at the same time. What does it mean? How is Paul using it? And this phrase is such a common phrase in the Old Testament. Well, one big clue, Paul loves to quote from Isaiah. One big clue is in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 5. God describes, my righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath for the heavens vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in it like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the word will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Do you see the synonymous nature between God's explanation of his righteousness and God's description of his action on behalf of the people. Do y'all see that? He's explaining, if you want to understand my righteousness, you got to understand it's on display for you. Look at my salvation that's coming to you. So understanding the righteousness of God is revealed What Paul is likely referring to 
in this phrase, the righteousness of God, is in his mind he's going, do you know all these promises? I mean, you, we've heard this phrase again and again in the Old Testament, these promises of salvation, these promises of how God, there would come a day that God would act on your behalf to rescue you, how God would bring a day where he would deliver you, how God would bring about a moment where he would redeem you. You remember all this? Well, that day is here. The righteousness of God is revealed. And I love that he uses this word because what he's saying is it's not discovered. We can't find our way to salvation. Salvation is a gift of God. It is grace, grace, a gift of God, lest we should boast. There's nothing that we do to earn salvation. There's nothing that we do to manufacture salvation. There's nothing we do to find salvation. God is the author and the finisher of salvation. And God brings salvation. And it's all Him. It's revealed. But what Paul is saying is the day is here when the, the salvation of God has been provided. And he's saying that this salvation is provided in Jesus. He said that up to this point. We know exactly what he means when he's describing this. He's saying, God, I got good news for you. I want to talk to you about what God has done. God has stepped in in Jesus Christ. He has come, and he's come to save you. And I want to talk to you today, Paul is saying, about how the, the righteousness of God, the salvation of God has been revealed to us, provided for us in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here in this text. Now, content number two. He's saying that this righteousness is received by faith permanently and exclusively, that this righteousness is received by faith permanently and exclusively. What he's saying here, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, and then look at this phrase right here, from faith for faith. I want to help you understand this. The Greek word from right here is the word ek. The Greek word for right here is the word ice. Now you go, that makes no difference to me. Ek and ice. This translated from, most would agree, this translated into. Okay? Curious, huh? So essentially, what we get is a phrase here, by faith, from first to last. Some of your Bibles may have translated this phrase just that way. But essentially, the heart of this phrase 
is for you to understand how is it that we can link up with this salvation from God? And what he says is this salvation, this righteousness has been revealed, it's been provided in Jesus from first to last by faith. In other words, what he's saying is we don't have anything that merits salvation in and of ourselves. We link up to salvation that is provided wholly by God as we depend entirely on him. Everything that we have of salvation is what we receive as we trust in him. And not only just as we receive it for the first time, we don't become righteous by faith and then maintain it through our own goodness. What he's saying is the way that we continue in relationship with God, it's by faith from first and also to last. In other words, our entire relationship with God is one of, oh God, I depend entirely on you. I depend on you and I depend on what you have done in Jesus Christ. Oh God, thank you, thank you, thank you. All I have is what you have given. It's what I receive from you. But then he goes on in this last piece of the gospel. He explains that in receiving this righteousness, it results in a new way of life. We see that in the, as he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, and then this phrase, from faith for faith, and then he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Y'all see that phrase? The righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting here. Some of your Bibles may have a little footnote that alludes to this quotation. He's quoting him from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. That says, behold, his soul is puffed up and it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, what he's saying is you've got a choice. Will you continue to try on your own? Will you continue to puff yourself up, as Habakkuk said? the big contrast, to make it all about you, what you have done, what you can do, what you will do? Or will you come to a point of recognizing that there's no hope in that? There's no hope in what you do for God. The only hope comes in humility. When you make a choice to humble yourself before the Lord, that's called repentance. It's the beginning of salvation. When we say, God, I'm sorry. I know that I have not been, nor could ever be, as you have desired. Within me, I am broken. 
I am helpless and I am hopeless apart from you. But God, in this moment of brokenness, as I humble myself before you completely, God, I am hoping in you and in you alone. I know I can't, God, and I could never, but God, I believe you. Some of y'all today have never, ever even come to this point. You've been around the gospel, but you haven't experienced it. Experiencing the gospel looks like when you come to the point, and you can do it even now, saying, God, I'm done with me. I need you. And I am believing upon you, God. I'm believing upon the salvation that you can bring. I'm believing upon your son who came, who lived for my righteousness, who died for my forgiveness, who rose so that the dynamite of God could be unleashed in my heart and my life to rescue me from my sin and to put me right with you forever. God, I believe you. I believe the salvation that you have provided. I believe you stepping in in my place. And God, right now, I'm telling you, I need you. You are my only hope. I'm trusting you. I'm asking you to forgive me and to make me new. The righteous, those who are right with God, are the ones who live like that. Not just in one moment, but in every moment all the time with all of their dependency on him and what he provides. Paul pulls in this illusion. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by what? By faith. And this results in an entirely new way of life. In fact, usually when this word faith is used, it usually is used in the present tense, which implies um, not like some past one-time event. Sometimes we get in the habit, I know in Baptist circles and probably other circles too, we get in the habit of going, were you saved? And it's all like past tense. And people are like point back to a moment. And I'm not, I'm not saying there's not a moment. There is a moment, there is a moment a death-to-life moment as we trust in Christ. But faith usually carries a present tense, is what I'm trying to say. The life that we live, yes, had a starting point, but it has no ending point. The life we live of faith is an ongoing life of humility and dependence upon Jesus Christ for our righteousness, for our salvation, for grace, for everything. It is a whole new way of life to the point that Paul later describes that if anything does not proceed from faith, it is sin. In other words, if you want to go back to any area of brokenness in your life, any sin struggle that you have, the root cause of your sin and brokenness that continues is unbelief. If you want to grow, seek to grow in faith. It is everything. It is the newness of life that we now have. All of this can be summarized in this phrase, justification by faith. Have any of you heard this glorious phrase in your life? Could you raise your hand? Okay. Justification by faith. This is what absolutely exploded 
in the time that, in history that we call the Reformation. Because what happened was Martin Luther, a German monk, had been taught that God required him to live a righteous life in order to be saved. He had grown up by his own writings to hate God because he was so frustrated that God would require him to do something, to be something, to be righteous, when he knew that he could never attain to that. He could never live up to that standard. He was constantly feeling like a failure. Even dedicated himself as a monk and could not do it. But then... A moment happened in his life. And the moment happened when Martin Luther read the verse that I just expounded for you, verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is from faith, from first to last. And in Luther's words, I labored diligently and anxiously as how to understand Paul's word. For the expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Although an impeccable monk, I stood before God a sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather I hated him and I murmured against him. But then he says, but then... I grasp suddenly that the righteousness of God is the righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be completely reborn and to have gone through the open doors of paradise. I broke through and as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, now I began to regard it, he says, as my most dearest and comforting word. <laughs> you want to know how explosive these verses are I'm teaching you? They can explode through dead, religious, lifeless hearts to bring the very power of God breath and life unto salvation for all who hear and believe. Much of our current understanding comes from this incredible verse and this incredible doctrine that God can make us right with him. It's really not that he makes us right with him. He declares us right with him <laughs> on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. It's much like what a judge does in a law court. He doesn't change the defendant, turning him into a new kind of person. He declares the defendant innocent of the charges brought against them. And what God is saying to us here in this verse is I have the power to save you. I am able to save you. 
I am able and willing to declare you to be righteous. It's not just that we are forgiven. There's a passive atonement and an active atonement. Yes, we are forgiven by the suffering of Christ, but not only forgiven, we are also made righteous by the obedience of Christ. Aren't you grateful for such a wonderful Savior in Jesus and for such a great salvation that not only does he for, forgive us, like wipe our slate clean, but he also adds credit to our account that he declares us to be righteous. This book is not about what we have done. This book is about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And I wonder this morning, as I close, can you tell a story like Martin Luther? A story of the point in time where you realized you're never gonna be able to save yourself. It's never gonna happen. You're never, ever gonna be able to do it. You desperately need one to step in on your behalf and do what you could never do. And can you tell a story about the time that you didn't just hear it with your ears, that you weren't just around it, but the time that with your heart you received with a smile in your heart and maybe even on your face, tears in your eyes, the good news, the joy of realizing that God is willing and God is able to make you right now and forever, to put you right with him because of what Jesus has done for you. He is able to declare you right, completely right, as you put your trust in him. And this is not what you have done. This is what he has done. And that's why we call it grace. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen? I go back to the first phrase as I close because I told you, Paul said, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, in every day, there are people who consider the gospel foolish. There are people who will criticize it people who will not understand or even come against it. The gospel has offense for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, there's nothing you can do. It's all grace. I'm telling you that you were so broken and desperate that someone had to die in your place. I mean, that's kind of offensive to tell you that you have a wicked heart and you need to repent. That's hard to hear. To tell some of you achievers in the room, including myself, that you can't be good enough? What do you mean I can't be good enough? To tell you that you gotta lose your autonomy and surrender yourself to Jesus? Or to tell you that you need to follow a suffering servant? <laughs> to tell you that the life following Jesus is a life of humility and faith and even suffering? And that offends us who wanna be comfortable, wanna be proud, want to be celebrated ourselves. And there's so many things that you could be offended by, come against, or think is foolish in the gospel. But Paul says, 
I'm not ashamed. In other words, I'm confident. I stand before you the same as Paul this morning saying, I, I, I'm not ashamed. I am confident. Because I know, not only because I believe God's word, but because I have experienced this personally. In these verses, in my college experience, they changed me. God completely changed me. Because this religious, hardworking, good boy from Georgia wanted so, so bad to be good enough for God. But when I realized that I couldn't ever do it, and I knew it, it's just hard to admit, but when I realized in these verses that it wasn't about me being good enough, but God, God is good enough. He is perfect, he is holy, and he has stepped in to do what I could never and will never do. He has stepped in and he has done it in Jesus Christ. When I read these verses and realized, Here's a, here it is. This is what I've been looking for. I've been looking for something powerful enough to change me. And when I realized that Jesus was the one I've been looking for and that I could have him as I trusted him, what grace exploded in my heart. At the same time, mourning and joy all at once, mourning over my sin and joy at receiving his salvation all at once. And I can tell you, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I could be doing a lot of other things vocationally. The reason I'm standing before you today is not because I care anything about myself. I truly care about you. And I want for you to know that God can save you when you trust in him. He can save you. He is powerful to save. And the only question that remains is, do you, will you, put all of your dependence on him? I pray, I pray that you will, for the gospel is the saving power of God, revealing his righteousness in Jesus for all who trust completely in him. And I just want to close also by saying in this time of response, for those of us who know Jesus, I believe the invitation is going to be now and throughout this book for us to get a little bit more bold and sharing Jesus with the lost and broken and hopeless world. For us all, we all have a tendency to shrink back, but for all of us to be willing to step forward and to be a little less ashamed, the gospel destroys shame because we know from our own experience it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And God calls us to so love, to so treasure Jesus, that evangelism, sharing the gospel, is not something that we ought to do. It's something that we want to do because we know his power to save. Father, I pray this morning for our church family as we consider these words together. Oh God, I pray that you would break through into our hearts. Father, I'm just asking for your grace Lord, you have done it. <laughs> you have done it in Jesus. You are able to save. And I pray this morning, Lord, if there is anyone here 
who has not personally just said, oh God, I'm sorry, I can't. I know I'm sinful. I know I'm needy. I know I'm helpless. I know I'm hopeless. I can't. But God, you can. If there's anyone here this morning, oh God, I just pray that even now, by your Holy Spirit, even now in this moment, they would turn to you, Jesus. They would believe you. They would receive you. They would put their hope in you. That they would be forgiven of their sin and made new. Oh God, would you bring salvation even here, even now. Father, for the rest of us, would you grow our confidence in this understanding? Would you grow our confidence in who you are and what you've done? And would you grow our eagerness to be bold and not ashamed of your gospel? For it is the power, your power to save. So we give you our hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for today's Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis. We want to encourage you to join us in person for worship soon. No podcast can ever replace the good design of God in gathering in person with other believers for worship in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with ICC, you can visit us at iccmemphis.com. As we close, we offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Thanks again for joining us.